Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. My name is Don Irwin. I am the president of the board of trustees for the Niagara Aerospace Museum in Niagara Falls, New York. Hey everyone, this is a dual episode of the Space Shot and the Cosmosphere podcast. I spoke with Don Irwin about New York State's contributions to the Apollo program, and I think that you'll really enjoy this. There'll be more full episodes of the Cosmosphere podcast coming out here soon. I'm going to be recording the Coffee at the Cosmo tomorrow, and I'll be releasing that episode over the weekend. Also, I've got the episode of my favorite space movies coming up, as well as the weekly historical episodes that I got a little bit behind on. For now, enjoy my conversation with Don Irwin. The road to the moon went through western New York. Today I'm talking with Don Irwin. Uh, we've had this interview on the books for a while now, and due to some just uh, life happening on my end, I've had to postpone it for the last couple months, so I'm really excited to finally have you on the show. Don, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I, I I love your podcast, and I'm glad we've had the opportunity to get together. Well, thank you. And me too. Um, you're a volunteer. You're the um, president of the Board of Trustees at the Niagara Aerospace Museum. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, you know what your institution does? Sure. Yeah, we're a nonprofit, mostly all volunteer organization. We have about 20,000 square feet in the old Niagara Falls International Airport Terminal. So it's kind of nice. Oh, cool. Visitors can come into the museum and they uh, it's nice big glass windows and they can watch the airplanes come and go. And we have um, Air National Guard on the other side with the uh, uh, fuel tankers on the other side. So they come and go and occasionally they'll be interesting things like ospreys and whatnot flying in and out. So it's always something fun to see on the outside. But more importantly, the stuff on the inside is what we like to talk about. And what we do is highlight the contributions of the men and women of Western New York to aviation and aerospace. And we have a long history uh, dating back to the 1900s. I don't know if you're aware, but the Aero Club of Buffalo is the oldest aero club in the United States, second oldest in the world. Uh, the members formed out of uh, cycling, motor, and pigeon clubs back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, as they uh, they got a, cer a certain group of them got really interested in aviation, um, the Aero Club was officially chartered with the state of New York in, in 1910. So that's been going on for well over 100 years. That's incredible. So there's a long history here. Well, and that's, you know, that's kind of what I want to talk about today is how you, know, you uh, sent me a paper that was really interesting to read through. And it's the, the road to the moon went through Western New York. And 
contrary to what a lot of people believe, um, NASA has always relied on private contractors to help build and develop the systems that sent humans to the moon and that have sent robots to explore the distant reaches of our solar system. And we're going to cover a few things today um, related specifically to uh, what companies in New York did to help us land, you know, land men on the moon before the decade was out in the 60s. So uh, let's start off with the lunar orbiter. I, I remember reading this years ago, and when I was rereading the PDF last night, um, I, I kind of spurred that memory of like, oh man, this is such a cool technology. Um, the lunar orbiter spacecraft uh, had a photographic exposure system, or it was like a system where the film was exposed and processed in the spacecraft orbiting the moon, and then it was scanned and sent back to Earth, which is just incredible. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how Kodak uh, developed that uh, system and how they contributed to the program uh, or to uh, NASA's lunar program? Exactly. Yeah, the Lunar Orbiter was a mission to help um, map the surface of the moon so they could figure out where they wanted to land the astronauts. And um, uh, uh, the Eastman uh, Kodak Eastman Company got the um, the contract to do that based on their experience with um, you know the gambits by satellites uh, earlier. And um, let's talk a little bit about those. They had developed. Um, systems for taking uh, film photography. Remember, there's no digital cameras back then. And um, the, the film would actually be um, uh, stored on in a canister, and then the canister would deorbit, uh, would parachute through the atmosphere, and then an airplane would come by and scoop it out of the, out of the air. And they'd take the, uh, the film back to Rochester, New York, where the film would be developed and then distributed to all of the intelligence agencies. So since uh, Kodak had developed the, uh, the processes for um, creating very lightweight, thin films to be used um, on orbit, they really already had the, the technology needed to send a camera to the, to the moon. So the state of technology wasn't such that they could send, you know, beam pictures back. You could beam a TV picture back, but if you recall from even Apollo yeah. 11, the the pictures were kind of sketchy, right? A little fuzzy. Um, but with film, you can get some really high resolution, um, uh, some photos. So, um, yes, if you go to, uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, George Eastman um, Museum in Rochester right now, you can see one of these lunar orbital optical systems. It had two uh, cameras in it, one with a wider angle lens than the other. But it had actually a roll of film in the camera, in the uh, optical system. And, um, you mm -hmm. know, everybody knows there's the near side and the far side. There's also a dark side and a light side, depending on, you know, what phase of the month the, uh, the moon is in. So when it was in the light side, it would take photos uh, of potential places where they were going to land. It actually took photographs of the far side of the moon as well. So I think uh, 80 or 90% of the, the moon was photographed. Um, but when mm -hmm. it was on the near side is the only time they could actually talk to it, right? So um, the, the, uh, the optical system had a, a means by where it would, it would actually just take normal photographs. It had a system for um, tracking the... Um, the object they were looking at or the spot they were looking at 
Uh, so it would it would kind of move as it went through the orbit, and then it would um, it would uh, think of a computer buffer. Right? It would store this film on a, um, on a on a set of spools that would get wider and wider and wider as it took more uh, photographs. And um, then when they were on the far side of the moon and couldn't do anything, they would st- uh, start spooling the stuff off through a. Um, uh, a processor where it would, it's, it's not the same as the Polaroid film, it's, uh, okay. but it's a similar sort of process. It's a dry hmm. photochemical uh, process and they would develop the film. And then when they came back around the near side, they would run the film through a scanner. It was a television camera and it would scan line by line, up and down, up and down, uh, turn all of those uh, pixels, if you will, into dark and light spots send those back down, and then they would um, recompile all those images, those electronic signals back into images on uh, on the Earth. And they would That's transmit incredible. while they were on the near side and then develop while they're on the far side, take pictures in the light, right? Uh, amazing to think they, they did all this in the time mm-hmm. when, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, access to a lot of computers, but they figured out how, how to do all of this. It's amazing. Well, the the lunar orbiter spacecraft that they were instrumental in figuring out, yeah, like you said earlier, where we were going to be able to land on the moon. So having that technology developed, you know, it's kind of, I guess, it speaks to the dual use nature of a lot of space technology. Um, something that was originally used for espionage was able to be adapted for exploration, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I think most aerospace companies are like that. They have developed one thing and then another um, need comes up and their experience in developing the first one helps them um, participate in the development of the next thing. Going off of uh, aerospace companies developing uh, interesting uh, products and technologies, there you know, aside from exploring the moon, trying to figure out where we were going to land, there was also the just uh, brute force approach of trying to get to the moon. And the Saturn V, there you know, it was three stage rocket, and each stage had to be able to be controlled at launch. And there's another company in New York um, that built the thrust vector actuators. Um, what, uh, can you tell, tell us a little bit about that company? Sure. Um, Moog is still here in Western New York, still actively, um, developing and, and, and providing space hardware to uh, all kinds of space companies for military and non-military uses. But, uh, back in, uh, Apollo days, um, it was called Mer- Mo- uh, Moog servo controls and they developed the, um, the hydraulic actuators for all three stages of the Saturn V rocket, and um, you know we we all hear what what are the um, the the specs? It was a uh, was it a seven million pound rocket with uh, like seven yeah seven point five million pounds of thrust. It was just insane. Right, right, right. <laughs> six million pounds uh, of rocket with seven point five million pounds of thrust. Right, and so um, that was all done by five F1 engines, and the four outer ones had to be gimbaled. And the computers, the guidance um, control computers on board the Saturn V, 
um, you know, they sent signals at a very high rate. So Moog had to develop um, an actuator that would uh, keep up with that rate yet control these huge um, engines. And, and as we know, they all worked flawlessly. And, uh, you know, they had that same technology on, on all three of the stages of the Saturn V. Uh, it's it's incredible to think to uh, the technology of the time coming up with a you know a servo for a gimbling system in the days where computers literally took up entire rooms and then shrinking things down to be able to fly on a spacecraft and then control a rocket in real time is just a testament to the the men and women that built these systems so it's just incredible yeah, the engineering was just just marvelous. It, it's amazing to look at the schematics of these things. When you see the cutaways, it's uh, it's something that we mere mortals almost can't comprehend. <laughs> yeah, I, I've looked at enough engineering blueprints to last one lifetime. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's definitely I, I have just a, a, an insane amount of respect for the people that can take these design or you know take these ideas, design them, build them, test them. And then ultimately fly them. It's just, it's remarkable. And speaking of flying, today is actually the 50th anniversary of um, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean lifting off from the moon during their Apollo 12 mission. And that kind of dovetails perfectly with uh, the next two things I want to talk about, which were the uh, training vehicles, the LLRV and the LLTV, and also the uh, Lunar Module Ascent Engine, which was a critical piece of hardware for getting home after you went to the moon. Um, let's start off with the LLRV and the LLTV, the training, re uh, the research vehicle and the training vehicle. Can you talk about uh, Bell Aerospace's uh, contributions to those uh, just bizarre looking flying machines. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Bell had actually suggested and put in a proposal for the LLRV and the research vehicle, the R in research vehicle. Um, they were, they, you know, they still really didn't know um, all of the characteristics of, of what it was going to take to land on the moon. And so the vehicle was there not to see what the astronauts needed to do, but really to understand the characteristics. So uh, you and your listeners may know that the lunar lander uh, research vehicle and the training vehicle had this jet engine on a gimbal mounted mm -hmm. in, the, in the center of it. And it could, when they powered it up, it could be, you know, more than 1G, so it would go up. It could be uh, neutral, so it would just hover. But then they would set it to um, one-sixth G, so it would fall at the same rate um, something would fall on the moon. And then they had the, all the control systems that would simulate what it would take uh, to uh, slow them down. As you know, there's the, the rate of descent switch that all the uh, commanders used, and, and they had that in the, in the vehicle. And then they had the little thrusters on the side that would pitch roll and yaw. And all the time that the centrally uh, located jet engine was was on a gimbal. It would be uh, it could be locked in position to when they wanted to go straight up. And they would unlock it and it would gimbal so that the uh, the vehicle itself could um, uh, pitch and roll and um, and and fly like they would have to fly the uh, the the lunar module. But it was it was used for um, researching and developing the landing profiles because they really didn't know what it was going to be like to land on the moon. So that's what the research part of the um, lunar landing research vehicle is all about. They came to realize that 
it would also make a great training vehicle. So they actually shipped the um, the two LLRVs uh, from Edwards out to Ellington Field in Houston, so that they could start training on them. And they um, uh, then had a contract to build um, the LLTVs, and the training vehicles look more like the inside of the the lab so it had the controls that were more like what they would see in the lem and um all of the astronauts who flew the LLTV and the LLRV said that it 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 made their job in landing on the moon um uh much much better they probably couldn't have done it without it well, just the the technology behind these two as training craft and and the LLRV as well. It was one of the first. I think it was the first fly by wire system um, on any type of flying vehicle, which is just incredible to think about. Um, and being able to take something, fly it up, and then simulate a lunar landing, and have that just be as you know as simple as a system as it was even though it wasn't really a wasn't a simple system but just it was an incredibly elegant solution even though it looks a little weird to the problem of trying to figure out how to train astronauts to do something that had never been done before um and they weren't without their uh their safety challenges either <laughs> no it was a um it was a, a a complex vehicle trying to do a complex things um and you know we've all probably seen the the video of neil armstrong ejecting out of one and and that Mm -hmm. that gets all the press you know we all we don't won't admit it but half of the reason we watch automobile races is to see the crashes right and then that's just kind of human nature but there were you know i guess hundreds of successful flights and and you know neil even um flew in one, you know, I think within a couple of weeks of the launch, you know, so he was still, um, you know, using it to practice uh, right up until the end. And and mm-hmm. all of the, anybody who landed on the moon um, had some seat time in one of those. Well, that's, you know, in, in Armstrong's words too, there's a great quote in this paper. Um, it says, he says, quote, six crews landed their lunar modules on the moon. They landed on the dusty sands of the Sea of Tranquility and the Ocean of Storms. They landed in the lunar highlands at Frau Muro and on the Cayley Plains, which is just incredible because, I mean, literally it was all of these. Um, and to continue, quote, during no flight did pilots come close to sticking a landing pad in a crater or tipping the craft over. That success is due in no small measure to the experience and confidence gained in the defining research studies and in the pilot experience and training provided by the LLRV and LLTV, which is about as glowing of an endorsement as you can get from the first man. <laughs> yeah, no- doesn't get any better. Yeah. Doesn't get any better than that. And uh, even in that statement, he he talks about you know there was the research component of mm-hmm. it as well as the training component of it. So it 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 really helped them figure out how to program those uh, landing computers and and define the landing profile. Yeah, uh, I love the little follow up to that was uh, John Young's words uh, was uh, just like flying the LLTV piece of cake. <laughs> Which is a, a it's great, true. Uh, you can find a YouTube of, on that. <laughs> that's, yeah. that is too good. 
Yeah, you can find a YouTube on that and watch that. It's really, it's really fun to watch. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to include that in the show notes because that is just a classic understatement. So, <laughs> um, you know, next up, this is, you know, after the training, you know, the astronauts would get to the moon and at some point they had to come home. I don't think all the crews necessarily wanted to come home right away. I'm sure they would have loved to hang out a little bit longer on the lunar surface, but there was a very special engine that was developed by Bell um, that sent the astronauts back up um, to rendezvous with the command and service module. Can you talk a little bit about the lunar module ascent engine? Yeah, the ascent engine was a, was a pretty special thing. Um, there was no backup for it, right? Um, if you think about the um, the landing phase of the the lunar descent, so as they were coming down, if something were to happen, the ascent engine could be a backup for the descent engine. Should anything happen, they could get out of there. Once they're on the mm-hmm. surface of the moon, though, uh, there was no backup. When they pressed the button, it had to go or they were never leaving. And yeah. so um, in all engineering principles, what do you want to do? You want to keep it simple, right? So yep. um, many um, rocket engines that we're familiar with have you know, sophisticated plumbing to um, keep the thrust chamber cool and all that stuff. Um, but they opted to keep it simple, a blade of surfaces. It only had to fire, but you know, maximum eight minutes. Um, it didn't have to be throttleable, you know. That, so they kept the the, the performance qu- requirements very very simple. Mm-hmm. And Bell got this contract again because of some earlier work they had done on perfecting, um, you know, simple rocket engines for the Air Force. And so yep. uh, their experience there allowed them to um, to go in, into this. Um, and so. It, it had to work. It worked every time. You know, it was a, a nice, elegant design. It didn't have to be as powerful as all the other engines, right? Because it was uh, interacting with the moon's gravity, exactly. not the Earth's gravity. So um, when you see how small this thing is, and we actually have two of these engines in our museum, and it's one of our most fun pieces of equipment to, to, uh, to show to people. Um, the people who are old enough, like me, to remember watching these things live, yeah. it's amazing to um, look at a picture of the lunar module after it's coming back up and you see the white bell sticking out of the bottom mm-hmm. and they're right in front of you as a white bell. It's a really good experience for our for our visitors, but also for um, you know younger folks who may not have experienced it or the real young kids who've, you know, this is all new to them. And, you know, you ask them, you know, could, can you imagine sitting on top of this and it, it has to work the first time to come home and, you know, you can, can see their, um, their eyes widen and, and whatnot, but there were a lot of redundant systems built into there. It's got the, um, the typical parallel serial, uh, valve configuration that many rocket engines have. And it's, uh, you know, that's one thing that's really fun to point out to kids you know, when you explain how all that works and sometimes you can just see that little spark go off and you say to yourself, oh, there's a future engineer, <laughs> got one, you know, <laughs> it's really neat. So even though the, um, the, the accomplishments of the, that, you know, were, were done is just incredible, got us to the moon, got us off of the moon, um, these artifacts still live on to inspire uh, people today either in, you know, their memories or 
imagining how you know they too can be uh, involved in developing equipment like that. Exactly. Well, and it's it's definitely a treat to see you know, younger kids, little kids, looking at artifacts like this, and then when when they find out what something was for, and just seeing their eyes light up, it's it's pretty cool. They've got a uh, here at the Cosmosphere. There's a mock-up of the lunar module, and you know you were saying earlier the astronauts were literally sitting on top of the engine. That that is no joke. With with where the uh, ascent engine was inside the lunar module, you know positioned on the lunar module they were literally riding right by a rocket engine you know they weren't just on top of it it was pretty much right there so seeing seeing that rocket engine and knowing that it was that close to them is just yeah if something went wrong you know it had to work every time otherwise it, it would have been a very bad day for them yeah and can, can you imagine you, we watch a, a saturn 5 launch right and it, it's a big thing you know the whole world there yeah there's everybody's monitoring systems of course the three astronauts are out there all by themselves um but it's all automated and and you know they're they're connected to the earth they're connected to the ground and if something goes wrong they can wait and fix it mm-hmm. now think about a launch yeah, yeah. Now, now think about <laughs> um you know their launch off the moon they're by themselves They've got to do it all. All the systems had to be built in, all the tests, automated, everything had to be there. Just a true testament to the the thought, the engineering, and, and the testing that went into all that so that, you know, two guys on the moon by themselves could launch a spacecraft. Well, that's something that as humans push back to the moon and then go to Mars, being able to launch from the surface of another world is something that we're going to have to start doing again. And you know, it's it's kind of easy to give NASA or give companies a hard time for being behind on timelines sometimes, but these systems have to work. Otherwise, you know, we could get astronauts going out somewhere and then not having an engine restart or not having something function as it should. You know, we could you know skip a couple months here to try to accelerate a timeline, but in the grand scheme of things, what's another couple months when? You know, if something does go wrong, those astronauts could be stuck somewhere. So I think, get, you know, taking your time, getting it right the first time is definitely the way to go. Definitely the way to go. And it, and that can be seen by multiple examples throughout the Apollo program where um, all of the testing they had done, all the different scenarios they had done, um, positioned them well so that when they were faced with one of those situations, they had the experience, had the knowledge and they knew how to deal with them. Uh, so, uh, not just the knowledge of the, and experience of the astronauts themselves, but the flight controllers, the contractors. I mean, you know, Apollo 12 is the perfect example with John Aaron, you know, being being at the Cape one night when the third shift crew messed something up, and then that inspired him to do some digging into why a system would come up with some weird numbers. So it's it's literally all of the people that are involved in those workforces that can have a truly transformative effect on a mission. So it's, it's, uh, it's inspiring to see, hear their stories and to share them. So I, uh, I, I appreciate you sharing uh, Western New York's little slice of, or not little, cause there was a lot of big things, but slice of uh, history uh, that helped get us to the moon. 
Oh, it, it, it's my pleasure. And we've just talked about a few things, right? There's there's a lot of other uh, contributions um, all over the state, not to mention Long Island, right? And the, the lunar module. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and even though we're highlighting Western New York and, and New York and, and our contribution to the Apollo, of course, uh, companies all over the country um, yeah. were involved. And that's what made that program such a, a neat and special endeavor. Yeah. yeah, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I think it was like over 20,000 contractors or something like that helped build the Saturn V, which is just staggering to think about. Yeah, I can't imagine that. We we have a number of contractors we we use in our in my day job and it's hard to keep up with <laughs> with that small number. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, well, Don, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you uh, being able to take the time today to chat about some space history. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, if you ever find yourself in Western New York, please stop by the Niagara Aerospace Museum. That's niagaraerospacemuseum.org. And we also have a Facebook page. Just search for us. And if I ever have the opportunity to be in Kansas, I will definitely stop by the Cosmosphere. Sounds good. We look forward to having you in the future. And hopefully I can be out here when you make the trip. So great. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you. That's it for this week. Be sure to subscribe to The Space Shot so you never miss an episode. I'd love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts. They help more people find out about the show. I've also got a call-in number that you can call or text with questions or comments. Just hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me at John Molnix on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All of these social media links are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.